Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. You're listening to the College Info Geek Podcast, where it's all about learning more, paying off your student debt, landing your dream job, and being awesome at college. Now, here's your host, Thomas Frank. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the College Info Geek Podcast. Now, I am super excited to bring you this episode today because I'm going to be talking with somebody who helped form the foundation for my own college success. His name is Cal Newport, and he's a computer science professor at Georgetown University and also the author of four different books, all of which I think are super super useful for students. And I'm just going to mention a couple of them right now before we get into the interview. The first one he wrote is called How to Win at College, and I actually read this book as a high school student, and the short tips inside of it gave me a foundation for helping my college experience be a better one and helping me stand out as a student. So I love that book, and it's on my Essential Reads for Students uh, list, which you can find linked in the show notes. And the other book I want to mention is also on that list. It's called So Good They Can't Ignore You, and this book is all about why building skills is more important than trying to find your passion in the quest for work you love. And that's the main topic of this interview. So in our conversation, we'll be covering the ideas behind that book, as well as his ideas on choosing a major, why he thinks building deep habits is so important, and a couple of other cool topics. So definitely stick around for the entire hour because you're really going to like this conversation. Also, in addition to his books, Cal is the author of the Study Hacks blog, which focuses mainly on his ideas about building deep work habits. The blog also has a ton of awesome student-related posts, and I've linked up a couple in the show notes. Before we get into the interview, if you've got questions about college, if you want to learn how to study better or master your money or get a job or anything else that you have on your mind, you can email those questions in to thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. Every month, my roommate and I have a question and answer session on the podcast, so if you want to get those questions answered on the air, that's where you can send them. Also, if you want to get each week's new episode delivered right when it comes out, then subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and you can find instructions for how to do that in the show notes, which you can find at sigpodcast.com, cigpodcast.com. That'll take you to the main podcast page on College of Vogue Geek, and you can find the episode 35 link to get those show notes. You'll get quotes, you'll get a summary, links to things we talked about, and that subscribe link. All right, so without further ado, let's get into this interview with Cal Newport. All right, welcome to the show, Cal. Hi, Thomas. Hey, great to have you here. Honestly, it's funny, after doing 30 of these episodes, I'm still really nervous to talk to you because your work was really a guiding light for me uh, as a student. In fact, I read I read How to Be Out or How to Win at College before I went into college uh, in high school, and I've still got my copy right here. And um, you, you had a tip about publishing op-eds in the school newspaper, and that was one of the inspirations for starting College Info Geek. So thank you for the inspiration and all of the great advice that was uh, able to help me be a better student in college. Yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I'll wait for my royalty checks for, from the podcast revenue to show up. <laughs> <laughs> well, whenever if I ever get to the point where there's podcast revenue, then <laughs> we can certainly talk about that. But um. You did, you know, all these books on student advice. You did How to Become a Straight A Student. You did How to Win at College. You did one high school advice, and that's the one I haven't read yet, but I'm sure it's just as fantastic. 
But in uh, the recent years, you've been focusing on this whole idea that find your passion is bad advice. And it's advice that's given out to tons of students. And I was just inundated with that advice um, going through my own college career. And uh, your idea is that it actually is more of a discovery uh, or a path of discovery through lots of work and uh, and deep habits and things like that. So um, just to start out, can I get your like sort of your take on what the passion hypothesis is and this advice and uh, why why it's wrong? The passion hypothesis is this idea that we start with a pre-existing passion that we all have one, and that the way to be happy in your work is that you first identify the passion that already exists, and then you use that to make your job choice. And if you if you match your job to this pre-existing passion, then you will be happy about your work. And if you ignore this pre-existing passion, then you won't. That is the dominant career advice paradigm that people of our generation are bombarded with, and it's one I think is flawed. Right. You know, it's funny, I, I kept getting that advice as a student, and then I would think to myself, like, why can't I think of what my passion is? Like, yeah, I, I think, this, <laughs> well, this is one of the, the, the big problems. There's two big problems with, with this advice. The first problem is that it really assumes that we all have a clear passion, at the, especially at the age of 20, 21, 22, when we're making our first career choices. But we just don't have a lot of evidence that that's true. In fact, we have evidence that suggests that most people – especially at that age, do not have a clear pre-existing passion they can use to make a career choice. So what advice do we give to them? Follow your passion doesn't have much to say. Exactly. So um, it really, to me, it sounds like it kind of goes back to the nature versus nurture debate, where some people believe that like you're born with everything. And some people believe that a lot of your personality and the traits that you hold through life are uh, learned through your environment. And I think it really applies to work as well. You can't really just pick a passion if you haven't had the experiences yet to to open your eyes to that passion. You have to actually get the experience first and uh, and learn what you like to do through work. Yeah, I think this is exactly right. So when I was researching my last book, I did something that seemed simple but had some complex results. That is, I just took a bunch of people who are passionate about their work, and then I asked them a simple question, tell me your story. And nine times out of ten in these, in these case studies, they had no idea in advance what they were going to do. They did not have a pre-existing passion for their work, yet they still ended up quite passionate about what they do. And I wanted to figure out, okay, well, how did they get there? For the nine out of ten that don't know in advance what they want to do, how do they still end up passionate about their work? And I think the story is much more interesting than simply we're all born to do something do a little introspection, figure it out, and you're done. I think it's more interesting than that, the real story. It's more complex but more interesting. Right. And I love the fact that you went out and did this research because, as you say in the book, there's, uh, you know, there are the cases where, like, athletes say, oh, I've been playing baseball since I was a kid. I knew that was my passion. And people will cite that as uh, positive proof for why you, you should just follow your passion, quote, unquote. And, uh, you know, when I when I heard that in the book, it reminded me of some study that I read a while ago about how the uh, the lowest rates of cancer are found in small communities, very small towns and rural areas. But then uh, the highest rates of cancer are also found in uh, smaller smaller areas. And the lesson to take from that is simply that you, uh, when you have a smaller set in your research, then the statistics tend to swing towards the edges instead of the middle. And when you have a lot of data, then you get more uh, mid median results. Yeah, I think there's 
there, there's two issues at play here. So I, I do think it's true. We hear this advice all the time, follow your passion. And we hear it from people who are saying, this is what worked for me. So what's going on here? Well, there's really two things. One is um, there are people, as you mentioned, who did have a pre-existing passion and they used it to make career choices and it worked out for them and they tend to be quite vocal, uh, even though it's a small subset of people actually out there. The other issue is there's a lot of people who later in their career who end up passionate about their work say my advice is follow your passion when what they really mean is follow the goal of ending up passionate about your work because I'm passionate about my work and I love it. But if you actually press a lot of these people and say, well, how did you end up in this job you love? You'll find that actually maybe very few of them knew in advance what they wanted to do. So I think these two forces, a vocal but small group of people who actually did have pre-existing passion and people who are misspeaking or misrepresenting their path when they advise you to follow your passion has made this advice quite ubiquitous when from an objective point of view, uh, it's not a very widely applicable strategy. Right. So uh, since the book's publication, which was 2012, right? That's right. Um, how, have you seen the landscape of like career advice change at all? Or uh, has it really made a dent? Uh, well, it's hard to tell. It's a, it's, it's a big landscape. But I, what I will tell you is the reactions I got to the book, I think, were quite uh, illustrative about how people think about careers. So so in the book, I, I yell from the rooftops, you know, from the very beginning <laughs> to the end, um, I want you to end up passionate about your work. And I think this particular strategy of starting with a pre-existing passion is a flawed one because, you know, most people don't have pre-existing passions. And, and even if you do, there's there's other issues at play about how you, how you build off of them. It's not just following it. And, you know, a lot of critique of the book, again, starts with the assumption, well, of course we all have passions. So Cal is just saying we should ignore our passions. It's it's just very hard. It was very hard for a lot of readers to get outside of this mindset of uh, we all have clear career-related passions. So once they hear anything that says this advice isn't good, they assume that the only thing that can mean is we should ignore these passions. It, it's too much of a leap for a lot of people to make it first to the to the idea that, well, maybe passion is not really a concept that makes sense. Maybe we don't have a clear pre-existing passion. Maybe if we want to love our work, we have to do something more complex. So I think the, the critiques of the book really uh, illuminate how uh, ingrained so many of us are in this mindset that, of course, you have a pre-existing passion. It's just a matter of whether you choose to ignore it or not. Right. So they see it as more of a binary question, like either you have a passion, you follow it, or you choose not to. Yeah, so e either you're saying you should follow your passion or you're saying you should ignore your passion. It doesn't occur to them that there's an option three, which is, well, I probably don't have a passion. How do I generate one? Yeah, it's funny. I've been reading about um, questions that shouldn't be answered because they don't need to be questions like uh, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to hear it. Like there's these philosophical questions that get posed and uh, – Either either or binary answer doesn't make sense because the question doesn't make sense. And I suppose that would be a, a sort of simpler way to put it, like follow your passion or not. Maybe that's not the right question because maybe you shouldn't just think of it in binary terms like that. Yeah, because you can push someone and say, well, what's passion? And things get really confusing. <laughs> what qualifies something as a passion? I think uh, part of the problem with this discussion in general is that uh, we now treat passion like a noun. Mm. You know, uh, I have a passion. Here it is. I have it on the shelf right here. Uh, where really passion is meant to be an adverb, right? You can you can do something passionately, 
uh, it's not a noun. It's not something that you have that you can point to that you can use as as a guidance in in uh, your decisions. It's it's a way of behaving. It's a it's a way of feeling about your actions. It's not a career segment. It's not a, a, a something to help you choose a job. Uh, so, I mean, I think this brings us to the question: Well, what does matter, right? What what does at this point people might be wondering? Well, what what can we do if we don't have a clear passion? Uh, and I think that the good news is that it turns out if you study people who love what they do, you find that this love uh, for their work has very little to do with uh, the match in the sense that the, app, the very specific content of the work is what makes them love it. It turns out that more often than not, there are general traits that if you have them in your job, you're going to really enjoy your job. And these include things like autonomy, a sense of impact, a sense of uh, creativity, a sense of mastery, that if you have those traits, you're going to feel probably quite fulfilled and passionate about your work. So I flip this on his head and say, we have to be a little bit more complicated. We don't all have a magic career that we just have to identify. Instead, we have to do the hard work of transforming our working life into one where we have these traits like autonomy, like creativity, like impact, like mastery. And these are things that take a little bit of time to build and you have to pursue them specifically. Um, But if you do, you can transform many different careers into something that you will feel passionate about. So it's more of a way of looking at what you're doing and and keeping a gauge on that as you keep getting better and better. And and as you go on, you probably will find yourself liking what you're doing more as you get better. Yeah, that's what the research shows, that if you have traits like the ones I summarized in your working life, you're more likely to, to really uh, feel motivated and fulfilled by your work. So this is a slightly more complicated equation than you were wired from birth for a specific knowledge work career and you just have to find it. This is more complicated. I'm saying, no, there's four or five traits that really matter if you want to love your work. And uh, it's going to take some doing to get all these traits in your career. You're going to have to kind of fight for them. Uh, You're going to have to earn some of them. You're going to have to maneuver for some of them. Uh, But if you can get most of these traits in in your working life, then you'll love it. So it's not quite as sexy as follow your passion. Uh, but it has the the distinct advantage that actually tends to work. Right. You know, it makes a lot of sense in hindsight too. I remember, uh, I'm getting into doing video now and I'm really excited about it and I can do it with my own business and it's, it's really fun. And, um, I'm remembering I volunteered to be on a video team at my school a couple of years ago. And at the time it like, wasn't very fun. It was really hard work. And I had to spend hours in this dark, dingy little room, editing tiny little slivers of interviews Uh, People talking about things I didn't really care about. But looking back, like those skills that I built doing those hours of editing are allowing me to do it now with more autonomy, which is one of those three uh, qualities that you defined in the book. And it's I feel more, I guess, quote unquote, passionate about it. But I had to go through those hours to get there. Yeah, and this is a more complex, but I think more realistic story. If we look at your story, you're saying, um, I work with video and um, I'm pretty passionate about it. So someone says, well, how did Thomas end up there? Well, the answer was not that, you know, one day while at school, you just woke up and said, I am meant to do video. And then you went and did video and loved it from that point on. No, the, the real story, as you just told, is more complex. You had to, you, you stumbled into it. I mean, you, you, you thought it might be interesting. Uh, it had a long period of hard work. It wasn't particularly satisfying. But as you got better, you got more leverage. Uh, over over this type of work that you were doing and you're able to transform it into something that had more uh, autonomy and also you had more of a sense of mastery. And as you gain those traits, you begin to become more passionate about it. That is the typical type of story you hear 
when you study people who are passionate about things. You don't hear, I woke up one morning and realized I love video. And from that day on, I loved what I did. Right. And uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So so what's your story? Because I remember in the book, you said something about you were looking for a professorship after getting your master's degree. And it was going to be your first and possibly last job search since uh, becoming a professor could be a life job if you do it correctly. At least it used to be. So did you go through a lot of different jobs and and, uh, different experiences throughout your undergraduate career? Or was it mainly focused on research and academics? Uh, So as as an undergraduate, I I focused on two things. I focused on um, my classes, including research surrounding them and writing. So I was doing a lot of writing. In fact, the book you mentioned earlier, I wrote while still an undergraduate. And uh, I wrote for, I was the editor of the Humor Magazine. I wrote an op-ed for the the school paper. So I did a lot of writing um, and I did computer science at my classes and research. Uh, So the reason I I wrote this book is that in general, my books follow the questions that are concerning me in my life at the time. So Hmm. my, my early books on student advice were written while I was a student. And then when I was in this transition period from becoming a student to entering the working world is when I wrote a book that tackled the question, how do people end up loving what they do? Because that question seemed, of course, really relevant when I was making these big career decisions. Um, And the ideas I found in researching that book gave me a lot of confidence in saying, I don't need to worry so much about what is the exact right job for me to do after graduate school, because there is no such thing. Um, What matters is that Whatever job I choose, uh, I attack it in a way that's going to help me very quickly get more autonomy, more impact, more mastery, uh, more creativity. So uh, the impact of this book on my life is that it freed me from a lot of the fretting that a lot of people in my situation would feel if they believed in the passion hypothesis and if they believed that there was a single right job for them. Because as as long as you believe that, you're always going to be worried that you got it wrong. Right. So I like like what you said there that when you you got any position – you went into it deliberately to get those qualities that were valuable to you, the autonomy and the competence and relatedness to other people. I really like that because you're not focusing on like week one, is this my passion? Am I in the right place? You're instead looking to set goals for specific qualities, not necessarily a specific dream job in your head. Yeah, it's important to recognize that uh, no one loves their entry level job. So this is one of the big problems that, that the millennial generation uh, is having is that they're the first generation to be raised on the advice to follow your passion. So they're the first generation to really believe the passion hypothesis. And the passion hypothesis says if you choose the right job, you should love it because you have a pre-existing passion. So what happens is they go to a job, but the entry level of any job is not going to be something you love because you really haven't earned much of these traits yet. You know, it's, it's hard work at first. It's not fun at first. Um, if you believe in the passion hypothesis, that's trouble because if you're not loving the work every day, you're going to worry that this is not your one true passion. And this is what's leading to a lot of job job hopping uh, among young people is because they've been told that there's a match that exists out there and they'll feel it from day one if they find the right match. So uh, I think the passion hypothesis is not just that it's, it's wrong but somewhat harmless. It's actually causing more unhappiness and more career strife than if the advice didn't exist at all. So it almost sounds like we're in the uh, sort of French revolution of um, career advice or career paths. Yeah. We, it's, went, it's from, we went from the, the go to school and get a job and stay there like aristocracy and then swung way too far left into 
choose a passion and you have it. So hopefully we can correct back to the middle where it's build competence, get good and something you're interested in and cultivate passion. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting metaphor. And in some sense, like right now, we're in this sort of uh, reign of terror period, right, where, where people who are who are now pushing back a little bit about this, we all have a passion, are getting guillotined left and right. Uh, and then hopefully we're about to come out of it into to a more stable uh, constitutional democracy if, if we're going to strain <laughs> – if we want to keep straining the metaphor. Um, so so I, I think a good point here then is, is saying uh, – what is the the alternative? And I my the the idea I came up with in this book when I studied it is that um, these traits that we know lead people to passion. Uh, you have to think of them as things that are rare and valuable. In fact, a really useful analogy is think of them like salary. Right? Uh, it's something that if you want a higher salary, I think that's equivalent to saying I want more autonomy in my job. To, mm-hmm. to try to have a sense of mastery, it's sort of equivalent to, to wanting a higher salary. right? In other words, these are rare and valuable things that you have to earn. Uh, so if you think about them as money, something like more salary or something, then it's easier to think of them as things you have to earn. So I think the right mindset is, okay, no one is going to just hand me autonomy. No one's going to hand me work that allows me to right away have a lot of impact. Uh, No one can just hand me a sense of mastery if I'm not actually good at things. Uh, I need to go earn them just in the same way I would earn a raise. So now your mindset is not, do I love this job from day one? It's how can I as quickly as possible get as unambiguously good as possible that I can begin essentially negotiating for these things. Right. Uh, there, you, you, you think of them as things that you want to earn just like you would earn a higher salary. So it definitely changes the it definitely changes the mindset here. And it's this not, is yeah. Oh, and this is so this is all under that term that you uh, coined career capital. Yeah, that's right. I said think about uh, as you build more rare and valuable skills, you get more career capital, and you can then invest this capital into rare and valuable traits like autonomy, impact, mastery. And a sense of creativity. So your question really should be in a job, okay, if I'm not happy, um, how much career capital do I have? If I have a bunch, I need to start investing it to get these traits, start using my, 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 my value as leverage. And if I don't have enough, I need to start thinking about how do I build it? How do I make myself more unambiguously valuable to the company? Uh, and I think that really clarifies a lot of uh, career planning and, and career indecision. Right. So... Um, my audience is mainly undergrad students, a lot of them possibly even high school students. So I'd like to ask you what you think about the the base advice that I give to them when they ask about choosing interests and choosing paths, uh, which I've kind of sort of called together or brought together from advice from your book and my own experiences. And I basically say, don't look at a passion, just try to pick something you're interested in and then work very hard at it and, and go for things that interest you and just try a lot of things. Uh, yeah. Is that good advice? Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. Um, in fact, my whole a lot of my initial thoughts and, and worries about the passion culture came from the advising I was doing with students about their major selection, because this is actually the first place you see the passion hypothesis show up is when undergraduates choose majors. There, there's a lot of indecision that surrounds this, and because people believe that there's a major that they're meant to do. And, right. and the, the, what's my passion? That's what I need to major in. And this causes a lot of trouble at the undergraduate level because what will happen is the student will choose a major and say, well, I think this is my passion. And then they get to their junior year where the coursework gets harder and hard work is not fun, right? I mean, it's just it's mm-hmm. hard work. They're learning. It's like building a muscle. It's going to be strained. Uh, but then they get freaked out 
well, wait a second, why am I not loving this every day? This must not be my passion. And they pull these audibles late in their college career or they start furiously switching their major because they've been taught that if you find the right thing, uh, it'll match some intrinsic passion. You'll love it every day. Uh, so it's actually college majors in which I, I first started seeing this issue. So my advice I give the students is very much in line with what you say. Um, choose something that seems interesting, certainly. Uh, to you, but there might be a lot of things that are potentially interesting. That's fine. There's no one right answer. Uh, what matters is is that you're making the choice, right? If you feel pressured into the choice from outside forces, you're going to suffer from the demotivating effects of uh, extrinsic motivation, mm. um, and that's dangerous. So it needs to be your choice. So choose something that seems interesting to you, uh, but then yeah, buckle down and do really well, and and accept that it's not going to be fun all the time. You're not going to love it all the time. Um, but that's okay. It's as you get better at it, it's going to open up more things for you and more passion. Right. It's interesting that you say uh, extrinsic motivation. One of my friends was talking about um, the phenomenon where you can do work for a client if it's free and love it. But then once money becomes an, like an, a motivator, like once money gets into the equation, you don't want to do it anymore. And I, I think it was called like the overreach effect or something. But it's when the uh, external motivator actually like shuts off your intrinsic motivation, it kind of like stamps all over it. And then you become demotivated because you see that as your motivator and it's not really strong enough anymore. Yeah, I think there's there's two points about uh, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation that are relevant. Um, and the first has to come with decisions, right? When you make decisions uh, to do things that are hard, so like a college major or a job choice, that's a situation where making the choice yourself uh, – moves what they call the locus of control closer to you as opposed to external forces. And you're more likely to sustain motivation for it, even if, you know, it's a job and then you're paid for it. Um, so I, I think that's very important. And the other place where this shows up in this discussion is when people try to take uh, something they really like to do uh, and turn it into a job, why they don't end up just loving that job. And that's because really in the world of work, the things that bring passion are those things I talked about before, autonomy, mastery, impact, a sense of creativity. Um, so people often have this wrong idea that, well, I really like to bake, so maybe I'll open a bakery and I'll, and I'll really like uh, my work. But that's the wrong model. When it comes to the working world, matching what you do to an activity that you really like doesn't really give you much. And it's exactly for those motivation problems that people get in trouble. They open the bakery and it's not so fun to do just on its own. Because uh, when, once people start paying you for it, it actually becomes quite a slog mm -hmm. uh, because that's not what makes people like their work. What they need is a sense of autonomy, mastery, impact, and creativity. So if you're an excellent baker and your business is thriving and people, you know, you're doing something innovative in your work, then you can really love being a baker because you have autonomy, you have a sense of impact, you have a sense of mastery. But again, that has very little to do with matching what you do to something that you like ahead of time. I mean, that it, it's, it's right. kind of a, a hard leap to make. People just assume it sounds logical that if I really like something and I do it for my work, I'll really like my work. But that really doesn't have much basis. You know, liking the actual activity uh, that you then do professionally does not play a major role in yeah. whether or not you're passionate because of those motivation issues. It's really autonomy, mastery, impact, creativity. And that almost always requires a lot of hard work and takes a while. Definitely. Yeah. And it reminds me of a, a, a few different times in my life, but one specifically where I've been designing websites for this long, a long time, and I have a lot of fun doing it when it's a personal project. And then all of a sudden I had this client and 
you know, the client was awesome, super nice person, but it was like designing a site for an area, like a, like a business type that I had no real interest in. And so I didn't really feel autonomous. I didn't really feel like I was very much good enough yet to innovate with it. So I almost felt like I was just sort of putting up uh, another version of other sites that were out there. And for that reason, it took me forever to get the project done. And I wondered why I couldn't summon the motivation to get this thing done where I could spend like all nighters working on my own projects. And that really kind of illustrates it. I didn't have those qualities. It's it's the foundations of motivational psychology that, uh, Liking to do something by itself is only motivating if you have complete control over the situation. I'm choosing to do it. Uh, So that's why you can't just translate that into a job and expect to love it. The working world, you really have to think, how can I gain autonomy, impact, those sort of factors? And and again, I mean, to be a broken record, almost always it involves you getting really good at something first. I mean, it's the reason I called my book So Good They Can't Ignore You is that is the sort of common thread in all the different stories of people who end up with these traits in their working life is they first get really good at something. And that's what gives them the ability to have a lot of autonomy over what they do. That's what gives them a sense of mastery. That's what gives them a sense of impact. Uh, It's that process of getting really good. So if you instead say, I'm going to spend three years, I know it's going to be rough, but I'm going to become a fantastic, innovative web developer. At the end of that three years, you could have the passion for the work because you'd be able to have a say over what you did. You'd have a sense of mastery. You'd be doing true creativity. But there's no shortcut, right? You'd have to first right. get really good, and you wouldn't want to expect that day one you're going to really love the work. Yeah, and I would assume that even when you reach a level of mastery, there are still a lot of hours that you put in that are just doing the work, and you don't exactly feel passionate about it because you know the the point of work is that it's you're producing value for somebody else, and they either can't or don't want to do it. So even if you're a master, you're probably not always going to feel as if this is your passion right in this moment, right? Yeah, it's a weird – I mean this is a weird warped belief that, that this notion that uh, if you find the right work, you're going to be enjoying every moment of it. I mean that, that's actually just an arbitrary idea that's sort of out there in the culture but doesn't really have much basis in, in history or, or in sort of the scientific reality. I mean if, if your goal is I'm going to enjoy every moment of what I'm doing, then you will always fall short of that. Yeah. I mean work, work is hard. Think about it, the process of getting better at something – a knowledge work task is quite analogous to, say, improving an athletic skill. It's something that you have to practice. Uh, and it's not just that you have to practice, but you have to practice in a deliberate way that's hard. I mean, you have yeah. to do the equivalent of shooting the thousand jump shots with, exactly. with the web development skill or this or that if you're going to get better at it. Now, that can be deeply satisfying because you know you're getting better and you're, you're, you feel your mastery growing, but it's not going to be enjoyable. Uh, and you really have to separate those two things. And the Pasha's hypothesis sets people up for this false idea that, no, 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 it, you're wired for something. And if you find that thing, you're going to enjoy every minute. Right. And you have to sort of guard against this grass is always greener on the other side effect where you, you just kind of assume that something else other than what you're doing right now is going to be enjoyable 100% of the time. It's funny, like, uh, do it, what I do is amazing and I love it, but some days, like, it's a lot of work, it's very difficult, and some days I'll wake up and be like, I wish I could just go be a coder, like, just a programmer. That would yep. be that would be so beautiful, I could just learn programming all day long. But I've been there before, and I'm glad that I journaled my experiences, because I know that I've been really stressed and really mad at having those jobs in the past. Yeah, so I, think, <laughs> I think that's I, it's absolutely right. And, you know, we should qualify, um, this advice doesn't get shouldn't get pushed to the extreme. So it's not mm. the case that um, all jobs are the same 
uh, in any job you could end up being happy and passionate. Now that's that's too far of an extreme. I mean, there's there's many reasons why a job might be wrong for you. Right. In other words, I think there's there's tons of disqualifiers. I mean, you might really dislike the people you work with. You might really dislike the industry. You think that this is a this job adds no value to the world. I don't I don't feel good about doing it. Um, it could be a position in which they're not going to grant you more autonomy or impact or control as you get better, right? That it's, I, we don't care how good you get. You have to follow this ladder. And there's tons of reasons why a job might not be good. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not saying that every job could be a source of passion. Uh, instead, we're saying there's not a single job that is the key to your passion. Right. That, you know, there's a lot of different, you still have to be careful in choosing something. It should still be interesting to you. It should still offer uh, good opportunities for growth as you get better. Right? So there's still mm-hmm. a lot of work to find a good job to pursue. But I think that that standard is way more achievable than the false standard of finding the single right job. Right. And I think that as you go on, you should really just gauge yourself. And as you keep working, you start to know yourself better. And you'll realize what sort of like types of work, kind of archetypes of work that you are better suited to. So I realized when I did an internship in a in an IT department that I am not suited to maintenance type work. I'm much more of a creator. Yep. But that's something that comes through doing the work and realizing it while you're doing it. Yeah, it's it's so in this in this way of thinking, uh, passion is the result of a, a, a relatively involved and somewhat gradual process. Uh, you, you go there, you, 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 you see this type of work kind of fits with me, you start building up skills and, and leveraging those skills. And then once you get a lot of skills, that's where you start doing some fine tuning. You say, now I'm going to shift over to, to this company or that's going to, this will use my existing skills, but give me a little bit more autonomy. And now as I get better there, I might shift my role within that position to try to get my impact higher. And there's a lot of fiddling that happens. It's a process uh, where your goal all along is I want to get more and more of these traits that are going to make me feel passionate. So so it's a process as opposed to just a, a single blessed choice. Right. I think it's a good thing to note that uh, what you said about sort of fiddling and making small adjustments and changes along the way, because a lot of students that talk to me, they're worried that their major choice sets them on a path for life. Like I, I'm a construction engineer. When I'm 50, I'm going to be a foreman on the construction site. And that's not the case. In the book, you talk about a lot of people who have switched jobs after they you know, graduated and worked for a long time. And it's all about just learning what you like to do and gaining career capital that allows you to make those changes. Yeah, and career capital really makes it easier to have these type of uh, internal conversations because uh, it changes the conversation from what I like doing this thing more to how much career capital do I have and how can I get how can I grow it? as quickly as possible and how can I get uh, the most return from it as possible. So once you think about things that way, you would never, for example, leave your job to go do something completely unrelated Mm -hmm. because when you start thinking about it in career capital terms, you would say, well, I'm throwing out all of this career capital I already have, which means it's going to be a really long time until I have enough to start getting good traits. So I'm not going to like that. Instead, right. you would say, what's wrong? You know, what, what's holding me back from getting these traits in this job? If I have a lot of career capital, either it's because I haven't asked for it or they're not going to give it. So I either need to ask for it or take my capital somewhere where I can invest it. But it, it, it allows you to make these smarter moves and, and to twiddle around uh, more intelligently and more sort of directed than just the grass is greener thinking of just maybe this job I would like or this job I would not. Exactly. 
So uh, I'm interested in how you advise students for choosing a major. I wrote an article about mistakes that students uh, make when choosing a major, and I think that was good, but I've been struggling with um, coming up with an idea or an article for like actually advising on how to choose a major. A major. And I like what you said about finding an interest. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on uh, that combined with the uh, the financials of going to college, like the expense of it and the whole... Um, you know, picking a major that's marketable or something that you're going to be able to get a job in. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so my typical advice is um, three steps. So uh, step one is, at least in this case, you need to ignore your parents. And this is an extrinsic, intrinsic motivation issue. If you feel pressured into it, you're going to suffer through your upper level coursework. So ignore what they're saying. Step two, uh, find a subject that seems interesting to you uh, in two ways. One, to study, it seems like it would be interesting. And two, the types of jobs that you found are available that because of that major also seem like they might be interesting to you or open up interesting options. Uh, now, that takes a little bit of work. This is why you, you might sample different courses in your first year or so. This is why uh, once you start honing in on a couple majors that seem interesting, you might want to get out there and do a little bit of work to understand uh, what the career implications are. Then step three, once you've made that choice, and again, lots of things are going to pass that criteria. You're going to find several different majors, almost definitely, that seem interesting to you and have interesting career implications. Step three is uh, then go all out and don't look back. Expect it to be hard. Expect not to love it all the time. Put your effort on doing as well as you can and just refuse to, to do grass is greener thinking. You do those three things, you know, that's as good as you're going to do. There's no better strategy than that. There's no magic major you're missing. There's no secret that you, you haven't found. That's as best as you're going to do. So it's really not, I guess it's sort of getting out of the mindset that your major choice is everything. It's it's simply a, a start to the path that could go in any different direction depending on how you act afterwards. Yeah, so uh, it depends, there's different ways of thinking about it. But yes, first of all, um, if you read the research, for example, of Brian Kaplan over at uh, George Mason, you'll see that actually when it comes to, to jobs and hiring, especially pretty soon out of college, a lot of the value of college is signaling not human capital. That is, um, the idea that you're learning specific skills that are what your employer needs for you is not as not as true as we generally think. I mean, really, a, a giant advantage of college is that you're showing they're able to take on uh, the complexities of actually going through and getting good grades in a college major, and that the mm -hmm. fact you're able to get through that says good things about you as a potential employee. Uh, so yeah, you don't you don't want to get too caught up. I mean, on the other hand, you you should say I could see. There's jobs available to me that seem interesting to me if I do that major. That's important. Um, but over time, as you build skills, you'll, you'll have more flexibility with those than you might imagine, especially when you're in college and, and, and don't have a great view over all of the different jobs and career paths available in the knowledge work economy. I mean, most college students have a very restricted understanding of what jobs are available. Um, so they can't really make a, an informed choice about what they're going to end up doing or what they want to do. So choose something, do it well, get the most interesting job uh, you can afterwards, do that well to build career capital and go from there. Awesome. So, um, so you got your major picked, you know, you're an undergrad, you have a major. Um, what you said about, you know, building career capital, and uh, I'm, I'm all about doing this as a student. And there are so many different ways you can do it, building soft skills, building communication skills, leadership skills, getting involved in things. But one of your core um, beliefs is that building deep habits and working deeply on one thing is really important. 
So um, I had an actual student ask me if I could ask you, how do you choose your deep habits and how do you choose which things to focus deeply on and, uh, you know, necessarily letting some other things go by the wayside? Well, as an undergraduate, it's an easy question to answer. Um, it's your made your courses, right? You're going deeply on your courses, trying mm-hmm. to do as well as possible, trying to trying to own those courses. I mean, that's the main evaluation criteria that people are going to apply to you outside uh, on the other side of graduation. You know, the courses are just uh, here are some complex intellectual challenges we're going to give you. That's going to require you to 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 master hard things, organize yourself, have self control. Were you able to do it or not? That's an incredibly useful test to an employer trying to decide whether or not you're someone they want to hire into a knowledge work job. So uh, your major and your major courses should be number one thing that you're applying your sort of deep focused concentration on. Outside of that, one, maybe two, but probably just one extracurricular pursuit. Uh, That's it. I want to go beyond that. Okay. It's interesting because, I mean, you hear a lot of uh, conflicting advice on that. A lot of people will say, oh, your courses are not actually that important you know, maybe just get like a 3.0 GPA and focus on building more practical skills that you could apply directly to a job. So it's it's kind of a it's hard for people to decide, you know, whether or not they should go all out on courses or not focus. Personally, I think I took the latter one where I was focused more on building career capital outside of the classroom. But I had a I guess I had a goal of something I wanted to do. So do you think it might be different if you kind of already know what you might like to do? And you can see a more, I guess, more solid path to getting there outside of the classroom? Do both. So if it make your one extracurricular pursuit something that's relevant to the job world, okay. that's fine. Uh, but at the same time, also trying to crush your, crush your classes, crush your grades. I mean, it's just uh, this is the job screening test, mm. right? You have to explain yourself. If, if you didn't do well in the courses, now anyone who's going to work with you in the future is going to wonder why. And right. they're going to say, and, and you could say, well, it's just not where my attention was. My intention was on this. And then, you know, that you might be able to convince them of it because the other thing you did was really, really good. But they're still saying, well, they couldn't do these two things at the same time. Hmm. So what's going to happen if I hire them? And, you know, there's two hard challenges, you know. So it's always, always better. There's nothing, you know, negative and always something positive about having done really well academically. Now, if you compare that with an extracurricular pursuit um, that is, specific to the job market and is impressive, then that's going to be a great one-two punch. Right. Uh, but I would always advise trying to do both. Okay. And I think it might it might also depend on what area of the job market you're going into as well. So if you're trying to find an area or a job in like a startup, they might put more weight on your extracurriculars and things you've built outside of the class yeah. versus, uh, you know, the academic world or, or larger, older companies they are probably going to place more emphasis on your actual grades. And then also in, in addition to your extracurriculars. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's true to some extent. But, but then again, it's still going to be better to have done the, the good projects, done some good coding, like show that you can build projects mm. and still have just destroyed your classes. Okay. It's always better to have the one few, right? You can, you, the storyline can just be, yeah, I, this stuff is no problem. Right. Uh, you know, look how smart I am. But you, you can make the storyline whatever you, you want it to be. But th- there is a lot of. There's a lot of pushback against grades, but I, I, I do have to say that you know grades are actually uh, very good at the function that they serve, which is um, you know evaluating how well you're able to tackle a sort of highly specific um, intellectual obstacle course. 
I mean, all a course is and the grades you get for the course is, is here is a bunch of intellectual challenges that's going to require deep thinking and organization and, you know, intellectual organization and time organization. And it's hard. It's like a hard obstacle course. Can you get through these challenges uh, and the grade will reflect that or not? Hmm. So they actually are really good uh, at measuring what they're supposed to measure. Uh, you know, a course that you take in college is actually a pretty good proxy for like sort of a standard intellectually demanding knowledge work type project that you might face in the real world. So people take grades seriously um, for that purpose. And I think there's a tendency to try to get out of that and think, well, I can learn my own things and, and make it too much about the material you're learning and make it about conformity or nonconformity. Uh, but a lot of it really is, are you ready? And if you demonstrated you're ready to go, um, you know, handle sometimes difficult and annoying and complex intellectual challenges. Okay. So it's been, uh, it's been several years since you wrote how to win a college, since you wrote how to be a straight A student and you've gone through two other, uh, academic programs since then, right? Your master's and PhD program, I'm guessing. Yeah. So uh, what have you learned about learning massive amounts of information and, and studying? And like, do you have any specific strategies or systems that you used in the years afterwards that helped you out more? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. The, the main idea is about um, – so when I researched this, this notion of how the top undergraduate study – you know, the, the main idea there was that the very highest scoring undergraduates think a lot about how they study. Um, so that it's not that there's one – system that makes the most sense, it's more of a mindset. So for undergraduates, academic success, the very top scoring students uh, put a lot of thought and experimentation into how they take notes, how they prepare for tests, how they write papers. They look for things that, that work better. They get rid of things that don't. Uh, and because of that, they're able to do really well, and they're often able to study a lot less than uh, the tier of students right below them that just throw all-nighters at the problem. Uh, so for undergraduates, the mindset of I am – caring a lot about how I study and always questioning why am I doing it this way, what might be more efficient, seems to be key. When you go to the graduate level, um, it's different. And it, it's different for a lot of reasons. For one reason, I think the big reason is in a, a sort of research-oriented PhD program like I was in, uh, coursework's not that important. Uh, you mm -hmm. take courses for two years at most, really, um, and that's it. You know, and it's not that important. It's all actually focused on research and research production. Um, and so what matters for that type of thing is uh, this deep work notion, this ability to be able to consistently focus without distraction on hard things. Um, that skill tends to be the key currency once you get to the graduate level. Okay. And you had a quote in your latest post that actually I, I loved, and it was great creative minds think like artists, but work like accountants. And that sounds sort of like this deep work notion. Yeah, that was that was a, a quote that David Brooks used in a recent New York Times column, and, and he was just uh, reflecting on uh, the lives of people who produce great creative work are often very disciplined. They tend to put aside the same hours every day uh, in which they work without distraction, writing or thinking or whatever it is that, that their work is. And it's, it's absolutely uh, been true in my experience. I mean, if you want to create things of value, uh, you have to do battle with it. Uh, thinking hard without distraction day after day after day. Yeah, it actually, I in my in my own life, I've really discovered that. I watched a video on uh, how you should write immediately in the morning, right when you wake up before consuming any content. And I've been trying that and it works really well. So what's your, uh, what's your sort of schedule or strategy for writing these days? 
Um, well, I, uh, I do a lot of writing, um, and I also do a lot of thinking. So as a professor, I'm a theoretical computer scientist, which means that I, I prove theorems for a living. So uh, my writing, in some sense, is actually thinking, trying to solve proofs, trying to come up with, with solutions to proofs. And uh, my, what I do is actually is I keep a tally each week of the number of hours of this deep work uh, that I put in. And I look at this tally and I can see, you know, how many hours did I get this week compared to the last week. Um, when I actually get a result, I'll circle the hour in which I got the result so I can also see the rate at which I'm producing results. Okay. Um, and that's what I use to motivate me. Uh, the idea of working during the same time every day I think is a good one, but for a lot of people it's not possible. Mm. And so this is what I use because my schedule changes enough and I have enough time fragmenting demands as a professor, uh, that there is no consistent time I can put aside. So I use this tally to help keep my motivation going to keep scheduling and putting in more and more of this type of depth. Okay. And is this like a, is this a manual tally or are you using something like a, like a toggle time tracker or like rescue time or something? No, I'm looking at it now. It's a, it's a piece of cardstock taped to my wall next to my desk. Okay. So very low tech. Yeah. In general, in general, I mean, this is, uh, there, there's a whole industry of uh, you know high tech um, tools that that are promising that this will be the key to you know it's mm-hmm. going to make you productive it's going to make you produce all this sort of stuff I think this is a mindset that came out of the early two thousands this is the period of David Allen's getting things done reaching ascendancy and, and other types of program life hacker life hack all these blogs uh, and they pitched this vision that all of work could be reduced down to these little widgets and that if you had the right system for organizing these widgets and telling you what to do next, that great results would just fall out. You just have to follow these systems. And that's, that's proven to be a bust. Mm. And, and, and what it turns out is that actually producing things of value requires that you do um, intellectual combat. You have to go really deep. You have to struggle with it. You have to do this day after day. It's not just a, a ton of small actions that you organize. Um, so this idea that you can get the right piece of software and it'll tell you what to do, and and then you'll just look up a month later and have have accomplished big things. Just turns out to be uh, a bust. So because of that, I don't really invest a lot of time or attention into high tech tools. Mm. I plan my day on a piece of paper. I track my deep hours on a different piece of paper. Um, there's nothing high tech there because it helps remind me that there's no secret equation, no secret system, you know, that's going to get me to big work. I just have to do the hard work. I like that. There's no secret system. <laughs> that's, that's a great way to put it. Even if you are using something technological like Wonderlist or whatever, it's not the system that's going to make you good. It's you putting in that like intellectual combat, as you put it. Yeah, and uh, the problem with systems is I found this with uh, student study systems uh, where I first encountered this issue is that there often takes more time to access and use. Mm. And therefore, you're way more likely to drop the habit. So that's why also I, when, I, when I give students study advice, I always try to push them towards the simplest possible formats, the simplest possible systems. Because as soon as you start using some sort of you know, piece of software meant to help you make flashcards and study things, you, just, you make that startup cost using it just a little bit more difficult. And you're just that much less likely to actually follow through. So uh, I'm often trying to simplify. I, I want whatever system I use to be as easy as possible. So for a tally, there's nothing easier than reaching over and just drawing with my pen. It yeah. takes no time. I mean, if I have to load up my laptop and log into a website and, and then slick through menus to select my current tally and then click some button, I'm just going to fall out of that habit. 
That's interesting. Uh, I, I guess the way I've named this concept of where uh, task management systems get all messy is entropy. And uh, I'm all about like trying to reduce entropy in, in my systems. And I've actually gone to whiteboards most recently and kind of ditched the whole keeping everything in Wonderlist or Trello. Uh, and I guess you're right, like simplifying really sort of gets rid of those startup costs and that can help you get in the habit of keeping everything free of too much entropy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good term. I like that. Interesting. Cool. So um, the one other thing that I had on my list that I wanted to talk to you about was this really interesting guest post you did for Tim Ferriss on the superstar effect. And it was about the student who got into Stanford without amazing grades, but it's because he did something uh, unique. So can, do you remember that story? Can you tell me anything about it? Yeah, so this comes out of my, my third book, which is called uh, How to Be a High School Superstar. And it was about this class of students that I called relaxed superstars. And there were students who um, ended up getting into really good colleges, um, but were relaxed and not overworked and not stressed during their high school years. So mm-hmm. the point of the book was I was trying to figure out um, how did they do it? You know, what did they have in common? Uh, and, and before I tell you how they did it, I want to give a piece of trivia that I think makes this more relevant is that actually that book, when I pitched it to my publisher, um, was not focused on high school students. Really? Uh, because I had seen these same effects happen uh, at the college level where uh, I, on my blog, I would call these students Zen valedictorians, not relaxed superstars with the same idea. Mm. I had seen it at the high school level. I'd seen it at the graduate school level. And I pitched them a book that was about this idea throughout all ages of schooling. And the publisher said, well, you got to focus, you know, we can't market it, blah, blah, blah. So we, we focused on the high school market. Mm. Um, but the ideas are just as applicable uh, to the undergraduate market. And the, the underlying premise is um, there are students at the college level as well as the high school level uh, who have this paradoxical balance that they are very impressive and at the same time they're very relaxed. Um, and and – I used to call this the paradox of the relaxed uh, road scholar because actually the first place I encountered this was interviewing road scholars for my very first book. I was surprised by why are these road scholars so relaxed as compared to like the average sort of, they're, they're the most successful students in, in American universities and they're often some of the most relaxed. Um, and that was the first place I encountered this effect. And uh, the, the, the thesis, I mean, when I dug into this is what, what seems to be happening is that students uh, have faulty models about impressiveness. So students' models or or internal hypotheses for what makes a student impressive are faulty. And it leads them to way more stress than is necessary in the pursuit of impressiveness. Um, So for example, at the high school level and the college level, um, there's this commitment to this notion that quantity is impressive, that doing more (laughs) things is more impressive than less things. And I know that well. <laughs> people people push back about it, kind of, but they still believe it. Right. And and you see any any writing complaining about college admissions, it comes down to this idea that well, in order to get into one of these schools these days, you have to do these twenty things. Mm. Uh, college students learn this during the admissions process, and then they perpetuate it at college, where it becomes even more absurd, because the last thing an employer cares about is how many different clubs you joined. But we have right. a hard time shaking it at the college level. So that's, that's an example of something that uh, is, is really faulty. So what, what does matter? Well, it tends to be you're judged at both the high school and college level um, 
by a couple things. You're judged by the thing you do best. Uh, so that's one important effect. And then the second important effect, and this is what I was talking about in the Tim Ferriss article, is that um, things that are hard to explain become disproportionately impressive as well. Hmm. So if we put those two together, uh, it becomes a pretty good formula for being a, a relaxed superstar or a Zen valedictorian, a relaxed road scholar, whatever term you want to use. Uh, it means, first of all, it doesn't make sense to do lots of things because if you do lots of things, that just reduces uh, the quality level of the thing you do best, and that's all that matters. So uh, it makes a lot more sense to take a very small number of things and do them really well. You, you will end up objectively more impressive than if you do a ton of things all kind of well. Uh, the second thing it tells you is when you're per- pursuing something, one thing, and trying to do it really well, uh, if you want to maximize your ratio of impressiveness to relaxedness, steer it towards directions that are hard for people to explain how you did it. Hmm. So if you want to become uh, – if you're the first chair violinist, for example, for like a state orchestra, um, that's very impressive, right? Uh, because you're doing something that's hard. Uh but that's also really hard to do, right? right. I mean, and you'll, you'll probably fall short. Um, on the other hand, if you um, end up uh, running some sort of music nonprofit as an 18-year-old that's working with schools uh, around the country, that might not actually be that hard to do. But mm. people have a hard time understanding how an 18-year-old did it, so they get a massive bonus and how impressive they seem. So that's the formula that I, that I preach is do a very small number of things, try to do them very well. And um, if possible, steer them in innovative directions, directions that are non-standard that the outside observer is going to stop and say, wait a second, how did Thomas do that at that age? That will maximize the uh, impressiveness you get um, for the time that you put into it. It will also maximize this ratio of impressiveness uh, to relaxedness. That's interesting. And it reminds me of like people's reactions to like magic tricks or, or really mysterious things. And they're, they look so excited when uh, when they say, how did you do that? And then when you explain it, they go, oh, and it's I guess it's like it's a little deflated because yeah. the mystery is gone. Yeah, that magic trick, uh, it, it plays on our brain wiring in a way that you just get this massive reward. You get this massive reward for it. So in that high school superstar book, I tell all these stories of, of – and I start with the thing that these people did. You know, uh, This guy had a best-selling book mm-hmm. before he applied to college. You hear that. You say, what? The 17-year-old best-selling book? This is crazy. Like he must be a genius. How impressive. And he went to Stanford. Um, but then you just tell a story. No, there's no magic there. It's not like he just showed up at a publisher and said, I have this great novel or something. The real story is way more prosaic and it, the book was about – it was aimed at teens and it was about computer pro, uh, computer game programming and he knew this guy and they said, why don't we try this? And it was a bestseller in Poland, you know, kind of. <laughs> but when you really get into the story, it's not that impressive. I mean he's an interesting guy. And, you know, he was innovative in his thinking and he was just to try these things was, you know, interesting. But there's never a point where he had to go do something that was really, really hard, like becoming the first violin chair. There's never a point where he was like the best pitcher in all of high school baseball or something. Uh, There's no step of this process that was all that hard. It just was interesting. Uh, So there's there's huge arbitrage possible, at least Mm. at the student level, when it comes to – trying to become impressive as possible. So that's what that whole book was about. And and you really, as a college student, you can read it and just read it with the idea that this had college students in mind. The idea had college students in mind when I was first working with it. Interesting. Well, I think I will have to read through that book and possibly add it to my book list then, because that's a, 
definitely something that's applicable to, to college students, not just high school students. Yeah, if you are if you're triple majoring and in 16 clubs and completely stressed out as a college student, uh, that is 100% unnecessary mm-hmm. and unproductive stress. There's just no reason to do that. I mean, the student who has a single major, a reasonable course load, a single extracurricular, but knocks him out of the park is 10 times out of 10 going to be a more impressive student than the completely stressed out triple major, triple club guy, uh, because that's just not what you're judged on in the real world. Uh, my old motto for the site used to be do less, but do what you do better. Um, and that really is the secret. If as a student, you want to build a life that's really enjoyable, but also is really impressive. Awesome. Well, that is a perfect place to end the main part of this interview. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. So I guess just out of curiosity, this doesn't really have to do with college, but you said you were a professor of theoretical computer science. That's right. So what are your thoughts on the development of AI? Because <laughs> this is just something that I'm like casually interested in, but I would love to hear what somebody in like the very high academic circles of it thinks. What are you interested in? That so, what are you worried about? Um... I guess the the sort of like jumping on point I got into with AI was the friendly AI movement and that this thought that uh, it's not it's not the matrix. It's not that they're going to suddenly be developed with um, perfectly human drives and motives and then rebel against us if we're mean to them. It's that they will have completely incongruent value systems and we won't be able to negotiate with them because we can't uh, we can't. We can't show them things that we are motivated by because of this completely different mind design. So the dangers are not that we're going to build something malicious, but that we're going to build something that becomes smarter than us and doesn't understand our drives and can't uh, fulfill its own while also keeping ours in mind. So here's why you don't have to be worried. Um, I think that type of thinking is based on a misunderstanding of what's fueling the AI revolution. Mm. Uh, Because AI is able to solve problems really well, make these really good recommendations, find these patterns, you know, figure out, hey, you need to, uh, I know you're probably going to the store and here's a better route that I figured out. Uh, We tend to think that therefore these AIs must be general intelligences, right? That that's our model. They're not. Here's what AI is. AI is, uh, the core of AI today is unsupervised statistical model building. Mm -hmm. What AI really is right now is um, you feed a lot of data into a machine you know, here's, here's input and here's like the right thing to do. Um, and the machine, uh, builds through iterative processes, uh, statistical models that do a good job of, uh, figuring things out. So, you know, you feed Watson a bunch of Jeopardy questions and the right answers. And it, 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 you iterate through these algorithms that tune these statistical models that then allow it when it gets a new Jeopardy answer, this model will spit out something that's likely to be the right answer. Right. That's what that's what AI is uh, today. It's just the sort of iterative development of statistical models that do a good job of producing the the right type of output. Um, it's not general intelligences. So uh, AI as it exists today is in no danger of you know having anything that looks like a sort of a general intelligence or intellectual life like a human would have. There is no misunderstanding of values out there because there is no values. These are just, these are just statistical models that take inputs and spit out outputs running on servers. So in the reading I've done, I think, uh, uh, I read a book and the author figured out that like over 50% of the people in the AI community think that AGI will be developed by 2045 or some year like that. Um, are you one of the people that 
doesn't think it will be developed at all or maybe much, much later? Uh, I don't know a lot of people working on that. I mean, when you, mm. when you, when you look in the sort of serious academic AI circles, people are, are solving specific problems. And, and okay. this is the method in which they're doing it. They're, they're, it's the iterative building of statistical models that do a good job of uh, producing an output that's otherwise hard to just describe how to do it. I mean, that's sort of the magic of these type of systems right now, is that if I asked you to come down and say, here's the process for you know, um, figuring out the right recommendation – for a Netflix user or something like that, or for controlling the autonomous car, you, it'd be very difficult to come up with some algorithm. Mm-hmm. And the, the magic of AI is that it, using the data, it, it builds up these models that are very complicated that humans don't understand that do give the right answers. Uh, it's finding structures and patterns in data that, that's otherwise hard to identify. So it's very cool, but the mainstream of AI work right now has nothing to do with general intelligences. Okay, so you don't see a whole lot of research teams trying to actually build this at this point. No, people are trying to build systems that solve specific problems. Mm. Okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating topic, and uh, I've been reading about it for a little while. So, just curious to get the perspective of somebody in computer science. Yeah, so we're a, little just bit, we're a little bit more sober about it. I think. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I'll definitely recommend your book. Once again, I've got it on my my essential books for students list, but I'll put it in the show notes for the podcast as well. All right. Great. Well, I enjoyed it. All right. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Kyle. Like I said, he was one of the main drivers for my success in college. So I was super excited to talk to him and I loved the way the interview turned out. If you'd like to read any of his books, I've linked them all up in the show notes, which you can find once again at sigpodcast.com. And most of them are also on my essential reads for students list. If you want to find that list, along with lots of other resources for students, then you can check out the resources page on College of Vogue, which is also linked up in the show notes. It's got my favorite resources for staying productive, finding cheap textbooks, writing better, managing your money, and more. Once again, if you've got questions about college, you can email those over to Thomas at collegeinfogeek.com. And if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe on iTunes to support it and also leave a rating and review if you'd like. That's all we got time for today. So until next week, stay cute. Thanks for listening to the College Info Geek Podcast. Grow your brain even more at www.collegeinfogeek.com.